Tom Hanks stars as Alan Bauer, a workaholic who's convinced he can't fall in love. That is, until he's mysteriously rescued from a boating accident by a woman of his dreams. Before you can say, mermaid, Alan and Madison are swept away on the tide of a hilarious and heartwarming romance. But when the world discovers Madison's secret, it's sink or swim for the two new lovers. Hello, and welcome to Cover Your Eyes. Today, we're talking about the movie Splash from 1984. Hey, Holly, want to talk about Splash? Why, it's like you're a mind reader. (laughs) So, this movie's from 1984, right? So, we were like six. Yes. I really don't think I've seen it since then. I, I like at all. So I was kind of excited to watch it and go back and be like, what was this? I felt like with the whole theme of it and it being like a beautiful blonde woman that shows up naked, that it could have gone like really wrong. It could have gone <laughs> in like a normal 80s direction and been just like super sexist throughout the movie and exploitative. But I was like, well, Tom Hanks is in it, so it's probably safe. Um, but then I remember some other movies Tom Hanks was in, like, Bachelor Party or something. It was really <laughs> creepy and weird. And then I'm like, I don't know. So, but once it got started, I was like, okay, yeah, this is good. I felt like they mm-hmm. kept it pretty wholesome. Splash is a a certain man's fantasy of a woman while also being a romantic comedy for the ladies. So I feel like the pitch in to the execs at the studio were probably along the lines of like, this is a, this is a romantic comedy that a man will want to go see. (laughs) Totes. I was looking for the VHS description afterwards and I saw that Roger Ebert gave it like one and a half stars. Ouch. It was like a terrible (laughs) rom-com yeah, I mean, you've got to take it for what it is. But exactly, well, it is like a man's fantasy in general. So, like, some beautiful blonde woman appears who is naked and can't talk. And the first thing she does when she sees you is only want to kiss you and have sex with you. <laughs> I mean, what could be better? I've had this fantasy about certain men in my life. That you wish that they couldn't talk and they just have sex with you? Yeah. <laughs> so I don't, I, I don't like, I don't necessarily find that sexist. Yeah. Because I'm like, I have totally met men before <laughs> I was married where I was like, oh my gosh, how can I get, get it to where they just want to have sex and not talk at all? Like, how can mm-hmm. we arrange this? <laughs> But I'll tell you something, most guys are not into that. Go figure. That's great. Go men. (laughs) Yay, men. So why did you feel that way about the guys, though? Were they just complete morons? No, it was just that I wasn't in a relationship mood. But they were like, I was very attracted to them. So I was like, well, we're very attracted to each other. 
I learned, hey, I learned in all the movies I saw growing up that men are totally cool just having sex. So <laughs> isn't that what you want? <laughs> so did you try for that or what? Yeah, yeah, a lot in college. Like that was kind of my women? MO in college. It didn't work out though very well because the guys don't want that. Because the thing is like, when you really get down to it, most people don't want that. If you if you connect to somebody really intensely sexually, like on a consistent basis, at some point you are going to get attached to them in some way, you know, because of the oxytocin. Yeah, I was going to say all that <laughs> oxy's coming out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You bond whether you want to or not, right? At the same time, it's like, it can be managed. I mean, you can have relationships like that. I guess it's good to like, if you're slutty, to like seek out other people that are slutty too. Totally. I think that's called grinder <laughs> or Tinder. Tinder. But anyway, so I think I saw it at home and with Nana and we were watching it and Nana's a big Tom Hanks fan. And we always watched bosom, that TV show. He was on bosom buddies. I love bosom buddies. <laughs> and um, I was like, I don't like this movie. You didn't No, when I was little, I did not like this movie. Huh. I remembered that. So whenever you suggested watching it, I thought, Oh, that'll be really interesting to see through the eyes of like what what did little me find unsettling or dislikable about splash one of the things that really stood out for me is that Daryl Hannah who plays the mermaid Madison Nana didn't like her my mom didn't like her either well She's extremely tall and very, very thin. And my, I know that my mom felt threatened by her looks. And I got the message of like, this is an ideal that you won't live up to. So there was this weird energy, I feel like, around this movie of her, like, on The Mermaid and how she looked and how she was received by men. And there was something very threatening, that message that I was getting. But it wasn't that I was getting it from the movie. I was getting it from my mom's reaction to the movie. So... There's a lot about Splash. Mermaids generally. Because I feel like mermaids are an archetype we have. Those stories that we have in our consciousness are going to influence how we see this movie. So what impressions do you have generally of mermaids? Like what tell me about mermaids. I'm an alien. Okay. <laughs> mermaids live in the sea and they are part woman part fish the bottom half is fish 
<laughs> oh my god! <laughs> I'm twelve. Me <laughs> too. <laughs> and the top half is normal human looking. So I think of like old sailors' tales of mermaids, and basically. They're often blamed for like shipwrecks, right? Because they would lure, mm-hmm. supposedly they would lure sailors towards the rocks. Mm-hmm. They would see like a hot woman and be like, oh my God, there's a hot chick. And we've been at sea for six months. Let's go after her. And then <sighs> crash. Yeah. So again, it's like a woman's sexuality tempting a man and causing problems for him. God, can't get away from it, even in the ocean. <laughs> And then the Little Mermaid, like those are the only things I think of when I think of mermaids. Did you like the Little Mermaid? I liked it. I don't think I loved it like as much as everyone else. Like there are people who still love it and like will watch it as adults. Um, I hated the Little Mermaid. (laughs) I had a feeling you were going to say that. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I've never been into mermaids personally. Here's my deal with mermaids. It seems like a nightmare to have my legs fused together. Yeah. I can't have sex. Mm. It's like the ultimate chastity belt. You're the virgin, but you're also the mother because your boobs are exposed. Is the mermaid Virgin Mary? Well, (laughs) definitely (laughs) never thought of that. Mermaids are men's nightmares. And lead to tragic doom because their boobs are exposed but they can't complete intercourse now for me so there's the legs fused together thing that's always i, mean, I can't me even have like the sheets tucked in me i can't either. imagine having my legs fused together <laughs> no way and then the other part of it is that underwater under the sea terrifies me i went to this place i don't know it was like in the caribbean or something they had this whole walkway you were walking under the sea and you actually were and i did it but i was really i had to really rationalize being like i was constantly going i'm safe i'm safe (laughs) (laughs) because if i had let myself i would have just had a panic attack right there And so going into this movie, I actually feel like I'm biased against mermaids, (laughs) not because they're a danger to men at sea necessarily, but just because to me, they've always represented this idea that if you're going to be with a man, you have to give yourself up. Oh, because they had to give away their life to go to land and to stay with the man. Yeah. Yeah. And then, like, in The Little Mermaid, like, there's this whole thing with, like, how she doesn't have a voice or something. And in, like, the original, I think it was, like, Hans Christian Andersen, in the original tale, her tongue gets cut out. Like, you know, it's really gory. Oh. Obviously, the Disney version is a lot nicer. But what's interesting is that this tale of a mermaid, he gives up his life to be with her. Yeah. So I wasn't expecting this like twist ending on that classic story. The other thing about mermaids, as an archetype, we have men being lost at sea, lured in by the mermaid, right? And then Mm -hmm. like 
it's a disaster. Mm-hmm. So, and mermaids are like known all around the world as a thing in some form or another. Clearly, like there's something going on in the collective unconsciousness that makes us drawn to this creature. If you look at the mermaid as a representation of the anima in men, that the what? The anima. So I don't even know what that is. Can you explain? Oh, me? Okay. Okay. <laughs> So um, I have I have like a boner for Carl Jung. So. Uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> With your anima, if you're if you consider yourself like male oriented, then you have an anima, which is the feminine representation of you. And if you're a woman or orient that way, you have an animus, which is the masculine or representation of yourself within you that's operating in your unconscious. Alan, he discovers a little girl underwater when he jumps over when he jumps overboard when he's a kid. And then she saves his life. And then she swims off and he's like, did I just see that? I think that was a mermaid. And then he always likes to go back to Cape Cod, which is where he's from, or where this happened with the mermaid incident. And then he goes back and he gets with the worst fisherman who ever was, apparently has no idea how to run a little motorboat, and he ends up getting stuck out at sea. So as an adult, he falls overboard in Cape Cod, the same place, and then he's rescued by Madison. Then she comes to town, finds him because she's like, that's the love of my life. And then um, hijinks ensue. She gets discovered as a mermaid. The military gets involved. And then they have to escape. And the only way that they can escape is for Alan to give up everything and become an underwater merman. But here's the thing. Here's another reason that like Madison is his anima is that he can only be safe underwater if she's with him. So unless he integrates his anima, he won't be safe in exploring his unconscious mind. I never knew that. (laughs) You like look at it on such a deeper level. I think where you look at like a deeper level and then you take like another even deeper level. (laughs) I have a, I have a dark moon and Scorpio in my natal chart. That explains it. So, (laughs) Yeah, it that sounds cool <laughs> for sure. A big part of this movie that I have trouble with is that, like, I keep finding things that logistically just drive me nuts. Like, there's a part where Madison, the mermaid, finds Alan's wallet underwater, looks up his address on a map, an underwater map that she has. <laughs> And even though she can't speak a lick of English, somehow she's able to find his apartment in New York City and swim there. 
I mean, I think this is one of those movies where you just really have to suspend disbelief. (laughs) (laughs) Starting with the whole mermaid part. (laughs) I know. I mean, I was wondering that too, when he was um, struck by the boat and then sinks underwater and then she... I guess she rescues him again, right? She's the one that brought him up onto the beach because he just wakes up on the beach and he's like, how did I get here? Mm -hmm. After falling out of the boat, then he sees her and then she runs out onto the beach naked and he's like, then she just makes out with him and then jumps in the ocean and never talks to him. Then she finds his wallet and sees, yeah, all of his stuff. And then the next thing you know, she's just walking naked up to the Statue of Liberty. And I'm like, what happened in the meantime? How did she get... (laughs) there (laughs) i was wondering the same things um yeah because she doesn't speak english i didn't even notice the map part she pulled out a map or are you just joking i must have been like eating my sandwich at that point (laughs) i don't remember that part (laughs) okay well then that explains it all if she was using a map then it all makes sense obviously sarah (laughs) a mermaid language map There's weirdly a lot in this movie. (laughs) That's good. I was hoping that you'd find a lot because I was like, I'm not sure there's really that much for me. Um, I felt like it could go really wrong as far as being like just completely sexist and Mm -hmm. making her like a mindless, naked, blonde creature that only wants to have sex and doesn't talk. But they turned it around. I think that they did a pretty good job of making her um, intelligent, too, because she learned how to speak English in only six hours of watching television. She pretty much mastered the language. So that was impressive. She did want to have sex a lot, which, okay, she's empowered and she's got sexual agency. She knew right off the bat, like, that's the main thing she wanted from Tom Hanks. For sure. Which I don't think he's ever really been thought of as a sex symbol, but to her he was the other thing so she she learned how to speak english from watching tv which is like that could be dangerous too i felt like it was gonna be um kind of like just an indictment on the 80s materialism and media like when she first gets to his apartment then he leaves her with the tv and then she first sees like commercials for Bloomingdale's and Klein collection. And then she looks at like what she's wearing and realizes like, I need these clothes. And then her first word is Bloomingdale's yeah. before she. And Klein. Bloomingdale's <laughs> and Klein. Bloomingdale's. It only took her that one commercial to learn how to speak some English. Okay. So. Where did she get the money to go on a shopping spree? Yeah, well, I think that he left his wallet, or maybe she still had it. She never gave his credit card back to him after she found it in the ocean. (laughs) Nice. That's my thought. She goes out wearing his suit. So she has, like, a total Annie Hall kind of moment, because that's the only clothes that she has. So she's like, well, I don't know much about this world, but I do know that I need better clothes, and I need to get them from Bloomingdale's, and that's going to be my first word in the first place I go. (laughs) So that's pretty eighties materialistic. I'd say. Yeah, definitely. I felt like this was one of those moments. Stop till you drop. Yes. And that if you are feeling lost as to who you are as a person, 
that you can buy who you want to be with the right products and services. Retail therapy and with someone else's wallet, especially. It's even better. (laughs) A strange man's wallet. Yes. A strange man that you've known for like six hours and you just immediately had sex with him in the elevator of his apartment building. I'm all for that. I mean, they went right to it. That's another thing that must have sparked my interest in having sex in an elevator. (laughs) Oh my gosh. I was, it was ingrained into me from a young age. (laughs) We're going to have to keep a running tally on (laughs) sex in elevator movies. (laughs) Seriously. John Candy Mm. is amazing in this movie. He plays Alan's brother, uh, Freddie. And at the beginning of the movie, he's wearing such a great outfit. He's wearing (laughs) a cream color knit scarf with like this burgundy velvet jacket. And he throughout the whole movie, he's dressed really great. (laughs) At the beginning of the movie, you're like, oh, shit. Like he's making he's the irresponsible brother. He's cracking jokes about like, oh, I'm glad you don't care about the petty cash drawer. Right. You know, and you think, oh, he's going to cause trouble. For Alan at their, I guess they're like a produce distribution company. Throughout the movie, Alan becomes less reserved and more emotional as he gets closer and closer to Madison, the mermaid, aka he gets closer to his, as he gets closer to his anima, he gets more emotional. And Freddie, becomes more responsible and ends up procuring a dinner with the president of the United States. Yeah. I was wondering how like how produce brothers got an invitation to this big dinner, but good for them. (laughs) They're big time. Yeah. I actually forgot John Candy was in this movie. So when I saw his name in the credits, I was like, yay. (laughs) And he was so funny in it. And it's funny to see him be like the, you know, quote unquote bad guy. Cause he's usually like, you know, not that, but um, he was still like really funny and really sweet. He was just a rascal, I guess. Yeah. (laughs) And he drove a red Trans Am, which was so awesome. (laughs) He he was really suave. Like Freddie's pretty suave. And he's able to procure these, like, big accounts for the business. I mean, he lied to get them, but hey, he lied and said that Alan had, like, a Vietnam-associated wound. Mm -hmm. And that's the other guy that he was getting business from was a Green Beret. So that's how they got the account. (laughs) Yeah, so our first introduction, like, when you're describing that of John Candy, Freddie, and he's also, like has a bunch of penthouse magazines and he's like i'm published <laughs> they accepted my letter so that's like his big accomplishment in life is making it into penthouse for him <laughs> and then later in the movie whenever madison gets found out to be a mermaid and the media is hounding them freddie's like let them know i'll only give an interview to penthouse magazine <laughs> <laughs> oh freddie he reminds Alan throughout the movie 
to be open, more open hearted. You start out thinking, oh, gosh, this guy's going to be trouble. But he actually turns out to be a heart, you know, like he has a big heart. And he helps rescue Madison like at the end. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, why don't we talk about Walter? Is that Eugene Levy? Yes. I I was so happy to see his name, too. (laughs) I forgot he was in it. (laughs) I had no idea. I love him. Me, too. So he is a big jerk in the movie (laughs) at first, but then he comes around, too. He's just passionate. Yeah. (laughs) He's very passionate um, about finding the mermaid because he knows that they exist. He's some kind of professor or something, right? So he's I been... think he's I think he's like an oceanographer. Okay. And he's associated and... with all these big professory people. And somehow one of them has like a link to the government later when they find the mermaid, the International Association of Oceanographers or something. So he is obsessed with finding a mermaid. We find out that like that's been pretty much his life's work, right? Or like that's what he's really into. And then when Tom Hanks, Alan appears on Cape Cod, um, he stumbles upon Eugene Levy on the beach. And that's when he's just really starting to get started in his mermaid hunt. And Tom (laughs) Hanks is lost because he got dropped off on the wrong side of the island. So Eugene Levy becomes convinced that he's like stalking him and trying to steal his work. He talks to the underlings on the boat as if he were a drill sergeant in the Marines. There's a lot of military stuff going on in this movie. Walter, he's on a mission, and he will not stop at any cost to reveal the secrets of the mermaid. As we go through the movie, he repeatedly injures himself through a series of pissing off the same couple that he keeps squirting water all over the woman because he keeps thinking that it's Madison. And he's like, if I can just get Madison wet, I'll expose her (laughs) for what she really is. And you can do what you want with that. (laughs) I'm 12. (laughs) He's completely motivated by protecting his ego at all costs and making sure that everyone knows that he's right. And then as we go through the movie... After Madison is revealed at the president's dinner, she's quickly scooped up by like the National Natural History Museum <laughs> researchers. I don't know. Sure, sure, it's like the Secret Service that picks her up first, right? Because like they're there because the president. Yes. Yeah. And then they see that Dr. Cornbluth, what's his name? Walter? I just called him Walter through the whole movie. Okay. I like that name. So I'm just going to call him Eugene Levy. <laughs> <laughs> that he has like this apparatus on his back. So he's posing as being a waiter so he can get access to Madison. And then he has like a hose built onto his back. And they see that. So they take him because they think he's trying to assassinate the president. But then while they have him like isolated on the sidewalk out front, Madison comes out. So he's like, this is my last chance. She's really mm-hmm. a mermaid. And all these people are around him, but they can't stop him from grabbing the hose and squirting her for like 30 seconds. Everybody's like, stop him, stop him. But no one somehow can get the hose away from him. Actually, there's some woman getting 
all wet. <laughs> that must be why no one stopped him. Like he's hosing down a hot blonde on the New York sidewalk. <laughs> so let's just see what happens from there. Don't take the hose away. <laughs> yeah. And then she's revealed. And then, so I thought it was like the secret service because they were already like swarming around. They mm-hmm. scoop her up and put her in like a limo and then, yeah, take her to the natural history museum. It seems like, and they also scoop up Alan and put him in a giant tank naked. You get to see Tom Hanks naked with just his yes. hands covering his genitals. And then the scientists, these like genius scientists are like, we need to keep him in the water so we can make sure he's not a fish. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Walter finds out that they're basically going to just kill her like a specimen mm-hmm. and like look at her organs and stuff. Also, she's like her her tail is getting all decrepit and scaly and weird. It looks like she has ick. Yeah, she's just like really looks sick. And so Walter is like, wait a second, I'm wrong here. This is not right. And it made me think about how this blind dedication to your single minded pursuit of some kind of innovation or discovery can lead to disaster because it's short-sighted because you're not looking at the big picture of like what are the implications of me being right in the long term or like to other people you're just looking at how do i prove this thing and so walter makes this his own grand discovery through his interaction with Madison the mermaid Walter discovers his own lunar aspects of being able to look at himself and to say wait a second my single-minded pursuit of rightness has led to horrible pain and suffering and so Walter discovers his humanity through his interaction with Madison, just like Alan discovers that he can have an open heart and be someone who isn't afraid to say, I love you. Because at the beginning of the movie, his girlfriend moves out and breaks up with him because he can't say, I love you. And Freddie's like, what's the big deal, man? You know, yeah. you know, Freddie's saying it all over town. He doesn't have any problems. <laughs> And so through knowing Madison, he's like, I have no trouble saying I love you. And in fact, I have no trouble completely changing everything about who I thought I was to be with you. Yeah, he proposes to her after two days together, basically. To me is, you know, that's Walter's another example of how interaction with this mermaid, because... Walter and Alan both chose to look at themselves instead of in a real honest way and to acknowledge that they have their own flaws. Because they did that, they are able to embrace their anima, Madison. And obviously they embrace her in different ways. Walter and Alan and Freddie all join forces to save Madison in the end from these evil scientists that work at the Natural History Museum. (laughs) (laughs) I thought it was a great place, but 
I never knew there were like evil workings <laughs> in the basement. Like, <laughs> that's like getting beat up in a Prius. <laughs> <laughs> so they have all of these people coming after them. The authority, you know, the government is coming after them. So Alan and Madison, they're together. They've had their um, sex fest, <laughs> uh, you know, and now they're like really getting to know each other uh, on a, a or personality level. And they're walking around New York City. She hears music and she goes up and she starts dancing, having a great time. And then he comes up and he's visibly scared of the musicians who are black. Okay, so I noticed that part and I was like, is this what I think I'm seeing? Yes. So when she was dancing, they uh like they kind of stop and just like stare at her and, and then I was like, maybe that's why he seemed like that cuz he thought she was bothering them. I really didn't want to think that it was the other way around. No. It's the other way around. I was I got very distinctly that for some reason i've always been super sensitive to propaganda of be scared of black men white ladies Mm -hmm. like it's never made any fucking sense to me in the 80s there was this whole new york city thug who's a young black male that was the part that you got in a movie if you were a black actor in the 80s, like that was like a thing. The scene of him being scared is part of that. I don't. The other part that was interesting was that later in the movie, you see them standing in a street together, watching a group of musicians play music in the street. They're white musicians playing classical music. No one's got a problem now. Suddenly. And so I was like, well, there's two scenes. I mean, like, they're even like demonstrating right here. Like, okay, here's black people be scared of, white people are okay. Ew. Like we've talked about before. It's like, mm-hmm. how do you feel when you see this thing? And me and my body, I felt gross when he was standing there looking at the musicians, clearly like alarmed. Like, I need to get this white lady away from these black men. But it seemed really obvious. Yeah. I can see that. I think I was just like hoping that it wasn't that way, but it probably was. Whenever Walter and Freddie and Alan go to save Madison at the military, because Madison's being held at the military base. It's like, but it's It's in the Natural History Museum, right? Yeah, it's like the military base at the Natural History Museum. Who knew? They go to rescue her and... They're getting, so Walter's getting Alan and <laughs> and Freddie into the room. And he talks to the, the guard. And the guard's like, oh, I'm half Swedish. And he expects Alan and Freddie to speak in Swedish because they are posing as Swedish doctors. The guy asks him some stuff. Freddie responds in really broken Swedish that he has a 12-inch penis. Yeah. And then the guard is like, oh, okay, cool. Yeah. <laughs> you can do whatever you want, bud. 
he's like, well, if you watch enough Swedish erotica, you pick up a few terms. That reminded me of this weird thing that happened to me. Where is this going? (laughs) (laughs) Whenever I was in college, um, I worked with this woman. uh, She was a friend of mine, and she gave me a silk scarf. And it was, like, hot pink. It was one of those, like, kind of sheer, they're kind of handkerchief. They're only big enough to, like, tie around your neck, basically. Yeah. Okay, so she gave me one of those. It's like hot pink. So this one night, I'm at a karaoke with a bunch of my friends, and I'm I have it on, you know. And I'm sitting at this table, and the the karaoke bar has these like really long community tables, basically. So everybody's just kind of sitting together. And across from me, there was this couple. The lady was like, "I really like your scarf," and they were probably like in their forties or so. I was like, oh, thanks. My friend, you know, my friend gave it to me. And the guy goes, my wife really likes your scarf. Oh, God. I'll buy it off of you. And I was like, oh, no, that's okay. You know, my friend Beth gave it to me. And he goes, I'll give you $50 for it. And I was like, no, that's okay. Now my friend, other friend is sitting there and she's like, it's $50. (laughs) Yes. She takes the scarf off of my neck and makes the transaction for me and gives me the $50. And then she's like, you owe me a drink. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I bought her a drink. Um, So I always thought that was pretty weird. And then afterwards, she was like, you know that they wanted that for like sex purposes, right? And I was like, Oh, yeah, I guess that, you know, it kind of didn't cross my mind in the moment just because, like, I wasn't, I don't know, I just wasn't thinking that way. Mm-hmm. But then afterwards, I was like, ooh, yeah, that's exactly what that was. Cut to last year, I'm reading a autobiography of Seca, who's this, uh, she's considered the platinum princess of porn. Oh, wow. Uh, from the prolific in, like, the late 70s, early 80s. But she worked for this production company called Swedish Erotica, which is the reference that they make in Splash, which is what reminded me of this. So I'm I'm reading this autobiography, and she's talking about how she has all of these silk handkerchief scarves that she saved – from her days in Swedish erotica at with Swedish erotica, because that was the signature that they put on all of the women in their porno movies wore those little silk scarves around their necks. Oh, wow. And then I got like this gross. (laughs) (laughs) And you're like blonde. They probably thought you were like a Swedish erotica porn star. At the very least, you know they were thinking of you while they were having sex using that scarf. And they think of you every time they see it in their porn closet. (laughs) My scarf was sex trafficked because my friend is the one that forced the transaction. So last year when I read that, I felt like kind of gross for a minute. Yeah. 
And then I was like, nah, I got fifty dollars. Yeah. yeah. You got fifty dollars. Like people have for to nothing. do a lot more than that for fifty dollars sometimes. So Especially you got in off the seventies. <laughs> yes. So did they. <laughs> Ba-boom. Oh yeah. <laughs> oh, the places that scarf has been. Anyway, the Freddie, whenever Freddie made that Swedish erotica <laughs> reference, I was like, oh my gosh, I totally get this reference. You do, like more than most people would. <laughs> I didn't know that was actually a company or anything. <laughs> um, oh, Freddie. So having a 12-inch penis opens doors, literally. We know this now. You can go anywhere you want in the world if you're packing. So that was a funny part. A part that I thought was funny that I like laughed out loud <laughs> when I was like, am I five? Um, whenever, so in the beginning when Tom Hanks is like trying to make his way out to Cape Cod. So he's been to his friend's wedding and he's all depressed because he just got broken up with that day. And he's like, I want to go to Cape Cod because that's where he feels the most at home, like you said. And he takes a cab from New York to Cape Cod. And the guy's like, that's 300 miles. I'm like, can you just imagine how much that cab fare was? Most people don't want to drive in the car with somebody they know pretty well for 300 miles, let alone in the cab. He was being super responsible, though, because he was drunk. And so he took a cab for 300 miles rather than drunk driving because he does have a car. Mm -hmm. So props for that. It turns out like he gets dropped off on the wrong side of the island or whatever. So he needs to get out there and he takes that little dinky boat, like you said, with the worst boat driver ever. And it's basically like, it looks like a porcelain clawfoot tub that someone put a motor on. <laughs> God, you're right. <laughs> and the the captain of this boat is like a large man. And then Tom Hanks is like telling him, oh, I look real, really nervous because I can't swim. And the guy's like, you can't swim? Then you wouldn't want me to do this. And then he starts rocking the boat violently back and forth. It was so funny. And Tom Hanks is freaking out. I love that scene. And then he ends up flooding the engine when he does that. And then he falls off. Happens. Yeah. I like how the guy with the boat was like, had a hammer on the boat. And just started hitting the engine like that's always how he gets it going. Mm -hmm. That's just the norm of the thing. Like, I thought that was really funny. Sarah, what was your favorite quote? My favorite quote of this movie is uh, when Madison, the mermaid, walks up onto the land um, and she's approaching the tourist group at the Statue of Liberty. And then the tour guides, they're like, telling all about the Statue of Liberty and all of a sudden he just sees this naked woman walking up and he goes, bocce balls! <laughs> bocce balls. That was my favorite. I love that. I'm going to start saying that. Holly, what was so, your favorite quote? <laughs> I Well, I feel like, okay, so this sums up to me the romantic comedy industrial complex. Alan And Madison are at the skating rink and they get into an argument. Madison leaves and Alan starts to leave, but he still has his ice skates on. So he looks really goofy. And then the security guard is like, dude, you need to bring the skates back. And he keeps trying to go. And (laughs) the security guard grabs his legs and tackles him to the ground. Yeah. And then... The security guard says to him, 
let her go. Show some dignity for Christ's sake. <laughs> and I was like, oh my God, this is what I think in every romantic comedy that I see. Like, that's what I think about the guy. I'm like, give her some fucking space, guy. This is why I don't like romantic comedies. This isn't romantic. Like, that guy is never attractive in real life. So there was this other scene that relates to this of Alan forcing himself into Madison's space. Whenever she gets in the bathtub, she slides into the bathtub and she puts salt in the bath and then she gets her tail back. And you can tell she's so relieved and everybody, well, if you like, if you like baths, like, you know how great it feels to slip into a nice hot salt bath, you know? And so she's really enjoying it. And then Alan like, is like, what are you doing in there? (laughs) And then whenever she's just like, she basically tells him, leave me alone. I need space. And he insists that she doesn't need space and that he's going to come in. And so she kind of freaks out and she flips out. She literally flips out of the bathtub onto the ground because she's still got her fins. And she's like trying to dry herself off so she can turn back into her legs before he breaks the door down because now he's decided to break the door down and i'm like yeah his actions with her in that scene are completely inappropriate and nobody thought hey this is a lazy plot device because nobody had any problem at that time invading women's private space like if you like you're automatically entitled to invade her space and like most of the people watching that movie watching splash at the time that it came out probably did not think anything of that scene except oh i'm so nervous is he gonna discover her tale it was just okay yeah, I remember that scene bothered me too, and it bothered me this time as well. Like, and I just have like a bad feeling about that scene. I don't remember exactly why, but it all just felt gross. I actually, I think when I was little, I thought it kind of creeped me out when her tail turned when she grew her tail too. I don't know why that part. I just felt like it was kind of scary. I mean, I was little, so maybe that's why. But the part about him coming in there just felt really weird too it was like violent for him and that didn't fit with anything else that had happened and it just made no sense of why it escalated to that so quickly I was like did I miss something so watching it again it's like she's literally just quietly taking a bath in the middle of the night she's not doing anything conspicuous or loud or anything and he just happens to wake up and notice that she's not in the bed. And then he's like, where is she? What's she doing? I have to know what she's doing at all times. <laughs> Basically, again, getting the message from these movies that no matter how great and perfect this guy is that's being presented as the great perfect guy who's the ultimate love interest, he's still going to invade your privacy whenever he feels like it. You just have to expect this sort of behavior where your uh, boundaries are going to get walked all over. Yeah, and you're kind of like under a microscope. It's like you can't even go to the bathroom in the middle of the night by yourself without him having to know exactly what you're doing. I think I must have been eating a sandwich again at that point or something too because I miss kind of like the detail of 
what really escalated it to that point. Or maybe nothing, there really wasn't anything. And that's why I just couldn't understand why you had to break the door down. Nothing escalated it. Well, okay. Yeah. I guess he could have justified it because there was like the thud when she flipped out of the tub. But I mean, she only off. had to flip out of the tub because he was so insistent on exactly. coming in. Exactly. Yeah. I just mean that like, that's yeah. when he was like, I heard a noise. <laughs> I got to get in there. And she's like, I'm totally fine. <laughs> if like, she's speaking to no. you, then she's fine. You know, if there's like dead silence after you hear a thud, then sure, you can investigate. But if she's literally saying, I'm fine, please just let me be alone in the bathroom. Then just leave the woman alone in the bathroom. That's generally a good rule, I'd say. For anyone that wants to be alone in the bathroom, Indeed. let them. They <laughs> have a good reason for it. You don't need to know what that reason is. God. It reminds me of like Pretty Woman where she's in the bathroom flossing and he's like, what are you doing? Are you doing drugs in there? And it's like, just let the girl be in the bathroom. <laughs> she's just flossing her teeth. When I was a little kid, I didn't get any of the jokes that <laughs> are funny to me now. I didn't think those were funny. <laughs> so... The only thing I got out of Splash is that you need to look a certain way, but that when you do look a certain way, women will hate you for it. Men will love you and women will hate you. Because my mom was sitting right there hating Daryl Hannah. Mm. And at the time, there was like this Daryl Hannah frenzy and everybody was like, Daryl Hannah, she's the hottest babe in town. Yeah. And it was like, that's cool. Like, good for Daryl Hannah, but that makes a lot of women feel terrible when they're being constantly told that, like, a woman who doesn't look anything like them is really hot and that, like, this is what we value here. Mm-hmm. And in the 80s, it was really the height of like just blatant ob- sexual objectification of women and being able to like make jokes and date rapey and all of this shit in the media. This is how it is. Accept it. Like you just got to like fucking suck it up, women. Men are pigs. Suck <laughs> it up. We're going to like abuse you. And throw you away because you're a fucking object. That I mean, that was so strong in the 80s. It was. And there were times when I was a kid and I would think, like, am I going to survive being a woman? Because I was already getting so many messages that, like, you have no privacy. You have no real sexual agency. And if you're not nice to men, they'll rape you. And if you are nice to men, they'll rape you. If you're not hot, you will get mercilessly ridiculed by men, by boys and girls, and you'll be valueless. You will have no value whatsoever. Like Martha from Heathers. Martha Dunstock. For some reason, the scene where he breaks down the door just about all of the messages in all of these 80s movies and all of the advertising is like in the 80s is just like the same thing over and over again and i 
was already aware when I was a, when I was a kid that like these were things I was going to have to like constantly override in myself as like that's not actually true. That's not actually true. Deprogramming in real time. That's a lot to take on as a child <laughs> to already have like that burden of knowledge in grade school. Well, also my mom, like whenever we would watch TV, she would be like, point out manipulations happening in a commercial to me. Mm. So it was weird because on the one hand, she's super savvy about like, look how they're trying to manipulate us into buying this thing right now. And she'd like really point it out. But Mm -hmm. then on the other hand, she was like completely obsessed with physical appearance and had completely taken on the belief system that like women were only as valuable as how attractive they were. Mm-hmm. And even though she would swear up and down, that wasn't true that she thought that all of her actions showed me that they were, that that belief was true. And so I also internalized that belief at the same time being aware that it's manipulation. Mm-hmm the things that you're supposed to be valued for are really like a quote unquote accident of birth. It's really just completely like a clusterfuck of contradictory messages for women. I guess the other thing about mermaids that have just always sort of freaked me out and made me (laughs) kind of like repulsed by them Uh is that a mermaid is a mixed message is a mixed sexual message because on the one hand she's got these like bare breasts and she's um, has a very like tempting, enticing energy that she's putting out there. Right. She lures men. Mm-hmm. That's her nature. Right. So on the, but then at the same time, she can't get her legs spread open. You know, like you said, it's like the ultimate chastity belt. Yeah. So, you can only be a virgin or a whore. And that if you're both, as a mermaid is, you will drive a man to madness, at which point he'll become dangerous. So I guess this is my like long term <laughs> unconscious mermaid associations that I have. Because as I'm watching this, I'm like, okay, I was grossed out by her being a mermaid when I was a little kid. And I was like, watched this and I was like, I don't like mermaids. (laughs) I didn't like it either. I found her scary. I don't know why. I'm glad. I'm glad that you relate to that because like there is a mermaid craze and I do understand the energetic appeal of the mermaid. In the mall, though, because, like, that's where she goes to become a full human is the mall. So that's super 80s. It's in every movie. Every movie, go to the mall. You have to go to the mall. There you will learn to be a human woman. And it ends with her. So she's been in the electronics department for six hours watching all the televisions. And then she's doing aerobics with Richard Simmons, which is, like, it does not get more 80s than that. I remember doing that with my mom. Like, I love Richard Simmons. I still do. Yes. So that was my favorite part. But it's like, I don't know. What do you think about that? Do you 
I guess it's like you kind of have to include that because it's the 80s and that was such a huge part of it. But it's like, is that just another part of the message of like, this is what you are as a woman, you shop and you exercise? I think so. I mean, that was what I got out of it. I got, when I was a kid, I distinctly remember like, this is a movie that is clearly telling me how I'm supposed to be as a woman. Stepford Wives, Girlfriend Edition. Mm-hmm. And like by the time she's at now, obviously that changes throughout the movie. But up to that point, her exercise, which, I, you know, OK, on the other hand, you could argue like, look, she's a mermaid. Like she swims around all day. Oh, yeah. She's not getting her proper exercise. So she needs to work out. Now, That's true. that was initially what I took from it. But at the same time, the way that the camera like was on her body as she was exercising was making it very clear to me this is what you need to look like the way that she speaks is like a commercial because she learned everything from tv this is what a man wants your when you are a dream woman it means that you are really pliable in all ways Another way that they demonstrated her pliability, she's watching like gun smoke and she's crying because somebody got shot. Oh yeah. On the TV show. And then he comes in and he's like he's like why are you crying, you know? And she's like, "Oh, this, you know, somebody got killed." And then he basically tells her, "Oh, TV's not real." Like you tell a little kid. He's like, "Actually, when you think about it, it's funny." And then she starts laughing and she's looking at him like, ah, so now I laugh, right? Oh, oh, now I laugh and I get to have sex with you and I shop and here's what I'm for because I'm much. your dream come true. <laughs> I mean, that's the ideal woman. If you asked me about this movie any time in my life, if you were like, would you tell me about Splash? That's kind of what I would tell you. Like, cause that's what, <laughs> that's what stood out for me. And that, that gun smoke scene is another, to me, that is like supporting behavior for him breaking down the door of the bathroom. No, what you're feeling isn't the real thing that you need to be feeling. You need to be feeling that something's funny so that I'll stay comfortable because your tears are making me uncomfortable right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's can shape her into whatever he wants her to be. I have to say though. So that's kind of like the direction I was thinking it could go really bad with, but I think he did a pretty good job of letting her be kind of free and like explore on her own. Mm-hmm. She was curious. She learned English by herself, which was good. But okay, so I thought that it was cute when he was supportive of her and things that she was doing that seemed really odd to everyone else because they didn't know she was a mermaid. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like when she just runs into the middle of the street and causes a big traffic accident, she's like, that light's pretty. Mm-hmm. And then the guy's like, what's the matter? Keep her on a leash. And then he's like, she's from out of town. Give her a break. And then when they go to that restaurant and they go to like a fancy dinner. <laughs> And she did remember this. Yeah. (laughs) They order a lobster and she just starts eating it like from the back outside, like crunching into the shell and everything. And then everyone in the restaurant just stops and is staring at her. 
he could be really embarrassed and be like, Madison, stop that. You know, mm-hmm. you're embarrassing me in this fancy place. Everyone's looking, but he doesn't. He just turns everybody and he was like, she's really hungry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he lets her keep eating that way. Cause that's the way that's comfortable for her. And he loves her and he's like defending her. And then later when they're skating, um, she like apologizes for it. And he's like, Oh, I don't care about that. And I was like, that's really nice. So there are definitely moments where he is like, accepting and supportive and he's just loving her for herself but I totally agree and that's great and by the end of the movie you know he's giving everything up for her he's giving up his whole way of being as a person for her Mm -hmm. so I agree with all that stuff and but that's what makes it more confusing (laughs) as a kid And now, but I mean, especially as a kid watching (laughs) Mm -hmm. a movie like this to see a guy who's so great break the door down because Mm -hmm. you won't let him come into the bathroom. Yeah, that does send like a mixed message. (laughs) (laughs) So whenever she first goes shopping, because that's like the first task that she accomplishes on land. And she's in Bloomingdale's looking for clothes. She's wearing his suit. And the woman's like, what are you, Annie Hall? And then she's like, we need to get you into something new. And she picks out this outfit and is like, this will look great on you. I couldn't even get into it. And then she's like, now my daughter, she's lucky. She's anorexic. Yes. I was like, ugh. Okay, whenever I heard that, I actually heard a record scratch sound in my head. Yeah. That was how fucked up mm-hmm. and shocking it was. But also, it completely jarred me back into the 80s mm-hmm. when that kind of talk wasn't shocking at all. And it reminded me of how I grew up around people who said stuff like that. And then I'm like, is it any fucking wonder that I had weird body dysmorphia shit for years and years? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You're lucky you're anorexic. First off, you're not anorexic. You have anorexia. That is one of the most dangerous mental issues you can have. The, yeah, the rates of death deadly. from that it, are really high. It is. Horrible. It's very hard to treat. It's no joke. And I feel like, yeah, when we were growing up, those words were just kind of like tossed around lightly. And like we saw in Heather's, they joke about bulimia. And it's like, that was the attitude. And it's I a, think hopefully it's finally changed. The attitude was, what are you complaining about, you shallow bitch? All you have to do is eat. I remember feeling like, Whenever people would talk about eating disorders, there was always this like hostility behind it of it's really just this woman's fault. Mm-hmm. What's her damn problem? She needs to snap out of it. I don't know why she's complaining. There's people starving in Africa. Let's not ever forget that in the 80s. No one is acknowledging any of the pressures that society is putting on all women to be as fuckable only according to 
standards that tell you you need to weigh 105 pounds and be 510 but also have like double d boobs <laughs> which was like the 80s you know yeah and three pounds of hairspray apparently <laughs> in your hair that made you hot and that made you fuckable and that made you worthy of existing in a room with men sometimes that was super blatant and sometimes it was subtle god <laughs> i remember always feeling like boy those girls with enough discipline to not eat food i wish i had that discipline oh man yeah that's pretty much like what this woman was saying about her daughter like oh she's lucky that she's anorexic it was weird because my mom was super paranoid i'd get an eating disorder oh really yeah at the same time she was constantly being like, let's try this diet. Mm. Like we'd like try diets together and I'm like 11. Oh man. Oh no. But at, also she's not fat even. Yeah. Always on a crash diet of some sort. Really? Yeah. Fortunately, there's something about me that, you know, totally like I'll go along for a minute, but if I notice like I don't feel good, I'll, I, I'm not going to go along anymore. Like, yeah. I was on all kinds of diets. Wow, I didn't you know, even know. You don't actually like let anybody know that because you need to be effortlessly perfectly beautiful. Because <laughs> I if thought you're you trying, were. If you're trying, well, thank you. If you're trying <laughs> to be beautiful, you're automatically not beautiful. Everyone needs to think that you eat cheeseburgers all day long. Like that's the eighties, babe. <laughs> Lick it up. Ew. <laughs> Oh my God. <laughs> it takes a lot of intentional deprogramming to not be in a diet mindset. Oh, constantly. I mean, yeah, you're always thinking about what you eat and like how much and should I be having less calories or less carbs or less fat? I never had any problem with my weight. For most of my life, I was like one of those lucky people who could literally just eat whatever and like never gain weight. And I looked like I worked out, but I didn't. Mm -hmm. That has all changed now. But for <laughs> most of my life, I was. And so when I think about all the things that I did go through regarding weight, it's like terrible. And it's like, where, why did I feel this way? Where did I get this message? You know, mm -hmm. um, and it's just, it's we're just inundated with it. Yeah, you're just inundated with that message. And I remember being like, I mean, we've talked about this before that I took like Herbalife in high school. Mm -hmm. I don't remember when we talked about it, but I took Herbalife in high school to lose weight when I weighed like 98 pounds. Like that's disgusting. But that's I felt like completely what I to do. I remember when Snackles came out, like those cookies that are like oh, yeah. fat free cookies. And I was like, oh, yeah. yes. I mean, I was probably in high school then too. And definitely in yes. college, I was like obsessed with the Snackwalls devil's food. I was like, I can eat these cookies because they're fat free. And it's uh -huh. like, I fucking weigh 98 pounds and I still have to worry about this. What is wrong? And I don't think my, my parents never talked to me about like diets or anything like mm -hmm. that. They obviously they knew I was eating those because they were buying the groceries, but I don't know. I never felt like pressured from them to like eat a certain way or anything like that. But if I and I don't know how I got Herbalife. <laughs> that is oh, I, I do know how I got Herbalife. Someone at school. So you're taking speed. It. 
they would just be like, oh, it's just herbal supplements, like vitamins, you know, they wouldn't even really know what it was. Yeah. And I didn't know it was like speed until you told me. <laughs> my, I mean, my mom bought it for me and we both did it together. Oh, wow. Because that's part of what we did was we dieted together. It's speed. I had horrible panic attacks and my mom is giving me speed. Oh, my God. Because that's how indoctrinated she is in diet culture the message is that no matter how beautiful you are, you could always be more beautiful. The there's problem, always some other product you could buy. or There's a new diet. There's a new product. There's a new exercise routine. I, I really have always, asso- like when I was a kid, I really associated Daryl Hannah with one of the women that was held up in a spotlight that said, girls you need to look like this. This is what you need to be. And that was just such a huge pressure on me. So it's so interesting to me to hear you talk about the pressure that you had, which is very similar to the pressure I had, even though you were very thin. What most women would strive for right? Weight wise. Mm -hmm. And that your parents never talked to you or put pressure on you about your weight, but you still ended up doing the exact same things (laughs) to be skinny and perfect and beautiful that I was doing. So that's how strong like the social pressures were. And I feel they're, I fear they're worse now people are getting like surgeries to look better in their instagram selfie. to look like their instagram filter selfie yeah that scene where he tells her no this gun smoke show is fake you know he's telling her like this these images are fake that you're seeing on the tv right but at the same time She's completely molding her whole existence as a human around what she learned from the TV. It's like we want to have it both ways. You know, we want we want it to be where we can indulge and enjoy and be distracted by media outlets. But then at the same time, we don't want to admit that those things have an influence on us because no one wants to admit that they're a follower or that they're not just like this Marlboro man individual. Mm-hmm. No, everybody's influenced by this stuff. I felt like the eighties were really a time when people were either on the side of like satanic panic <laughs> Rock and roll music is making people murder. All of that kind of idea that like the media is like actually controlling kids because it's an agent of Satan. But then you had this other extreme of people saying it's up to the individual to decide what has meaning for them when they're watching, when they're consuming some sort of art or media. Right. And that is true. But it's also true that, like, 
people are influenced clearly by media. So as demonstrated by the fact that we were both on Herbalife in high school, you know, I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't fat in high school, but I also didn't weigh 95 pounds. And it's also interesting because I always thought Sarah's so lucky. She doesn't have to spend all of this time preoccupied with her weight. (laughs) Yeah. You would think so. If only that were true. (laughs) Wow. I mean, that's just like, that's a revelation to me of just how extreme these influences have been. It's really all just trying to sell more products. Exactly. it's, it doesn't really, I mean, you know, you can argue all day long about the effects that this stuff has on women, on women's psyches. And like, it keeps women from achieving career goals or development, you know, other types of development that aren't how beautiful you are. And mm-hmm. that that keeps patriarchy in place and it keeps women against each other because everybody's looking around to see who's prettier than they are. Blah, da, da. I don't think it's a big conspiracy. I think it's just all rooted in the fact that it was discovered that you can make people buy shit they don't need if people think they're deficient. And that you have a product that's going to fix the deficiency. And that it really is just that simple. That's like a survival motivation. Capitalism is a survival motivation. It's like, I'm the strongest. I So if I can be the strongest and I'll have power and I have control, and that means I can always be safe because I have the most resources. Look at all the casualties. Because you had a singular drive and purpose, but you created a mess around you. So really, in a way, it's like Walter is <laughs> representative of like, if capitalism realized its mistake. Whoa. There are so many layers to this movie that I didn't realize until I talked to you. I mean, I had eight pages of notes. Are you kidding me? No, front and back, man. I don't know what happened. I got the mermaid thing just like. I can't. I can't think of anything else, really. Do you know? I think that's. I think we've gone through it. You've gone like all through it, every level of it. (laughs) (laughs) So much deeper. Yeah, Yeah, this is a deep cut. (laughs) A deep cut splash. I just think, yeah, the coolest part is that it takes like a twist on the classic tale of that he gives his basically life up to be with her instead of the opposite way. And and also Walter discovered that you have to follow your heart and that you can't make science your religion because mm. it makes you short-sighted of the implications and consequences on humanity of the work you're doing. That's great. That's pretty progressive too. Cause like at the time I feel like (laughs) Hollywood had a progress boner Mm -hmm. in the (laughs) eighties. 
we're white men. Look around. See what we have done with metal and chemicals. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's, yeah, most of the movies. So for the question this week, um, so I was thinking the question would be like, have you ever been in a relationship and someone, you thought you knew them or you thought you knew everything about them and then suddenly there's this bombshell of something that they used to be or something that they are now or something that they've done in their past. Just something that's like you came out of nowhere and at first you're surprised or appalled, but then eventually you realize like it's still worth it to be with this person Mm -hmm. and I can overcome that. I love this question. So that's the question for this week. If anything like that has ever happened to you, let us know about it at cover your eyes podcast at gmail.com or on Instagram or Twitter at cover your eyes podcast. Also, if you have ideas for other movies we should cover in the future, we'd love to hear those too. Thank you for listening to Cover Your Eyes Podcast. If you like our show, please feel free to count the ways. Find us on patreon.com backslash cover your eyes. You can also visit our store on Redbubble at Cover Your Eyes Podcast. And don't forget, we love it when you subscribe, rate, and review. Are we going to say see you next Tuesday still? So... <laughs> okay, we can say bye, y'all. See you next Tuesday. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Bocce balls. Bocce balls. <laughs>